0: and you wanted to give to the first fruits offering you'll be able to give a check sometime later this week into the office if you so choose and it would also just be a joy to to have you stop by and say hi to us in the office today we're going to be returning to the book of Exodus this is part 2 of a sermon that i started a while back titled, Plagues, that you may know that I am Yahweh. That was the purpose of the plagues in Exodus, that things would be made known about who the Lord is. And we're going to be picking up on the first plague in 714 together today. And as we approach this particular text the main point that is drawn out here and given to us by God through Moses is made in all the phrases that are repeated throughout you know the major point is the thing that keeps getting said over and over and over which is the, these things I'll give you a few examples in seven seventeen, it says thus says Yahweh by this you shall know that I am Yahweh Later on in 8.10, he says, then he said, tomorrow, so he said, may it be according to your word so that you may know that there is no one like Yahweh our God, or 8.22, but on that day I will make a distinction for the land of Goshen where my people are living so that no swarms of flies will be there so that you may know that I, Yahweh, am in the midst of the land. And the text and the plagues continue to go on to make the point this is about Yahweh making things known about Himself. Well, what is it in particular that the Lord wants to make known about Himself? Well, one of the major points is that God alone has glory, God alone gets the weight of what people think about, speak about, worship, live for. That glory doesn't go to Pharaoh. It doesn't go to the Egyptian gods or other concerns or matters in life. God alone has glory and we're to give him the glory that is due him. And so he makes himself known as the glorious creator and redeemer through this text. The other thing that's being revealed throughout this section of these plagues here is that God is sovereign over evil. He's teaching this to Moses and to Israel because the human heart isn't inclined to believe that God is so powerful that he actually controls evil. The human heart tends to think of it, well, God just kind of lets it happen and responds to it. But God doesn't make lemons out of lemonade. You know, he's not a 911 responder. He actually ordained the evil that is happening. When you go back into Genesis 15... God told Abraham that the descendants that would come from him would be in this slavery in Egypt for four centuries. This was God's plan. This was happening exactly as he wanted it to. God is even in control over things not only from water to land to sky, as you see in the plagues, but even over the hearts of men, even over the heart of the man that was you know, the greatest evil superpower on the planet the current reigning pharaoh it wasn't that god was allowing these things to happen but he was controlling and ordaining them so that he could display his glory through carrying out every single plague so why did god harden pharaoh's heart so that pharaoh wouldn't stop at plague four and say no more because god had something he wanted to reveal about himself in plague five six seven eight nine and ten and Pharaoh couldn't give out early and rob God of the glory of what he was wanting to communicate about himself to Egypt, to Israel, and to the surrounding nations. So what Yahweh wants to make known about himself is not only that God alone has glory and that he's sovereign over evil, but there's this other repeated phrase that was emphasized, especially in our last message, that these things happened as Yahweh had spoken. It's kind of like reading Genesis one, all, all, all over again. God said, and it was so. God said, and it was so. Same thing, you're reading Exodus. It's the like same God. He tells you how it's going to be, and it is so. It's exactly as he says. In the first plague, as we come to that, water here is turned to blood, where you'll remember that The plot of Scripture is developing from Genesis 3.15 where God had told about how there would be this seed of the serpent but also the seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent. That there was going to be this long battle that would happen throughout history but in the end it would culminate in the crushing of the head of the serpent under the heel of that particular seed born of the woman. And as scripture develops, you may remember from the first message on Exodus how we talked about when we're reading a narrative in scripture, we want to keep up with plot and perspective. What you could hear how the, the plot develops and is emphasized here in Exodus, even as Jeff read this morning, that it's connecting back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, what did God say to those guys that's so important? Well, he promised that they would be fruitful and multiply. That has happened in Exodus. That's why Israel was becoming the great nation that they were. Uh, it wasn't because of their goodness, it wasn't because of their wisdom, but because of God's promise that these things were happening. But this also gives us a perspective. You know, we're seeing we're given this perspective, God is faithful. When he promises to do something, he does it. When he makes a covenant, he fulfills it, he's faithful, you can trust him, he's powerful. And we're getting perspective here, not just on something that happened a long time ago, but we have the same God, we live in the same world, and the perspective that we're given about Egypt and Israel and these plagues is a perspective that we're still to have today. And that's something that we'll build out a bit in this message. And as we continue to work through this, these plagues here together you remember last time I was going to preach nine plagues I did half of one I'm going to try to finish all of them this time which means we're going to have to skip over some things but I've already given you the major points of uh, the plagues but you know recognizing my inadequacy and the need of the moment I want to go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help Our gracious Lord, we thank you for your word by which you make yourself known. We pray that we would learn the things that are here, that we would know you as you want us to know you, to know you as you have revealed yourself as the sovereign one who has a right over all the things that you have made, for all the earth is yours and even those who dwell therein. We pray that you would teach us and that we would not just learn about a story long ago, but you would confront our own hearts and bring us to have a fear and hope that resides in you alone amen in verse 17 of chapter 7 it says thus says Yahweh by this you shall know that i am Yahweh behold i'm about to strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand and it will be turned to blood We see here Moses going on the offense as he comes to approach Pharaoh at the place where Pharaoh would come to worship the God of the Nile, the place where Moses would have been drowned, but now he's standing there alive because God had drawn him out and had delivered him, and now he's communicating the retribution of God on those who would seek to end God's seed of the woman plan by drowning the future generation to come. But God's plan is moving forward, unthwarted, and God is carrying out his retribution at Planned Parenthood of the Egyptian Nile. This sort of concept isn't of retribution isn't unique to the Old Testament. I want you to see that not only here in the first testament but also in the new testament in 2nd Thessalonians if you want to turn to 2nd Thessalonians with me and look in chapter 1 verses 5 through 8 2nd Thessalonians starting in verse 5 it says this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering, since it is right for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give rest to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, executing vengeance on those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Here, God is comforting the afflicted Thessalonians by telling them, God's going to afflict those people that have been afflicting you. He's a God of vengeance. You don't have to take vengeance yourself, but you can rest in the fact that God is going to take care of these things. Uh, He knows how to judge the unrighteous and to deliver the righteous. As you continue reading in 2 Thessalonians, you see more of how that's carried out in chapter 2. If you look there in chapter 2, starting in verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 7 It says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, whose coming is in accordance with the working of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. And with all the deception of unrighteousness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God sends upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in unrighteousness. There's a parallel concept to what happened with Pharaoh. You know, with God hardening his heart, you know, God is sending the deluding influence so that he would continue in what is false so that God could glorify himself by judging him. God hasn't changed. And you see that here even in 2 Thessalonians. Who's the one who sends the deluding influence on those who do not obey the gospel? God does it so that they'll believe what is false he says well why why is he doing this in order that they may be judged who did not believe the truth and took pleasure in unrighteousness this sort of text should cause us to fear for any unbelief that's in our own hearts but any unbelief that's in anybody else which perhaps you're familiar with pastor john MacArthur writing a letter to California Governor Gavin Newsom in concern for his soul because the governor's sending out billboards around the nation using the words of Jesus, love your neighbor, by sending them to California to have an abortion. Sounds like something that Pharaoh would have came up with, but ultimately it's something that Satan has always been about doing, killing the next generation so that there won't be future image bearers, there won't be future people who are being saved there won't be a future witness of God and so there's a war on those who are made in his image but back in Exodus 7 you see God is a God of vengeance and retribution he's not going to put up with those things he may be patient in his judgment but he will always bring a just judgment why does this happen at the water why is it that the water is struck where Pharaoh's coming there to worship his God. We well, also to show that God who he thinks controls the water is dead. The Egyptians believed that there was a God named Happy who controlled the waters, and they would go to pay homage to him. And so what happens when you see that there's blood in the water? Happy is dead. He doesn't exist. Happy has no glory. God alone has glory And here this first plague reminds us of Pharaoh seeking to kill the Israelites' children. But this is a warning shot at Pharaoh that he's going to be coming for his firstborn, which is exactly how the plagues end and the 10th plague. But don't fail to see that God is communicating he cares about his people. He doesn't just overlook these things and he's indifferent to the blood of the, the children who were put in that same Nile. He's going to do something about it because he's the God of love. Because he's the God of love, he hates those who hate him and pour out hatred on his people and the witness that he would have through them. These sort of events we read of again in the final Exodus in Scripture, which is Revelation. And I think you'll hear the echoes of these ideas in Exodus as I just read you a couple of short portions. This is in chapter 11 of Revelation, when the two witnesses have authority over the waters, and they turn them into blood, and to strike the earth with every plague so often as they wish, and when they have finished their witness, the beast comes up out of the abyss, will make war with them and overcome them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. You hear these same concepts in chapter 16 of Revelation. So the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you, who is and who was, O Holy One, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the authority over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. Pharaoh, as you recall, also didn't want to give God glory. In chapter 5 of Exodus, he says, I don't know Yahweh. But now God comes back through Moses and he says, by this you shall know that I am Yahweh. And these waters are turned to blood, which some people say, man, maybe just some red algae or something that showed up in the river during this particular time. Well, it says at the same time that this was not just the nile it wasn't just the river it was in the reservoirs their vessels of wood their vessels of stone this is everything from the river to your water bottle you know this isn't blooming red algae this is what it says it is it's blood it's god saying i control every single drop of water everywhere and you hear these echoes of creation throughout the plagues Echoes like, let there be, and it was so, because God is the only creator who speaks and acts. He's the only creator and controller of all things, so that no one would think, oh, Pharaoh's in charge of the river, or this other Egyptian god is in charge of these things. They're seeing our gods are dead, Pharaoh's powerless, the only one who has glory is Yahweh, and within this disaster, this plague that had come, the Egyptians couldn't drink. And God is carrying out his retribution by making Egypt more desperate than Israel was previously. But there's a, these deceitful works that are carried out by the magicians. They did something similar with their secret arts. And Pharaoh seeing this, being the guy who witnessed this, you think the obvious thing would be You should not bother Yahweh or his people. But it says he didn't even set his heart on this. He didn't even give himself to really even thinking about these things because he was so dumb and dull to these things going on and even his people digging around in the ground to find a drop of water. The tyrant didn't even care enough for his own people to give the matter any thought. He was totally insensitive to the suffering brought about by his own failing leadership. And this shows how hard Pharaoh's heart really is under the judgment of God, which God was hardening him for a purpose, which was to break him. What you see in these plagues is the gradual breaking down of Pharaoh. Verse 25 of chapter 7 says, And seven full days passed after Yahweh had Struck the Nile, which is again an echo of creation language. God's the one who controls everything, but the seventh day reminds us God is going to bring us back into his rest, but to do that, he's going to have to destroy some other things. The second plague is in concern to the frogs, which you see in chapter number eight. And what happens is there's a movement from the water to what is in the water. You know, God is the creator not only of the water, but the things that come out of it. Which another book that was written in history before this, Job, tells us about this beast that comes out of the water. This Leviathan dragon creature that man just couldn't control this serpent dragon creature, but only God could and would you see, there's this theology being built of, there's this power that man can't control. It's the serpent dragon Leviathan that comes to humble man to show his need for God to come and rescue him from that dragon. Interesting, these frogs are the mascot of the Egyptian goddess of the midwives. You know, remember those Hebrew midwives who saved children from being drowned in this place, Where people that this should have been an obvious connection. So, you know, God controls even those frogs. God controls the midwives. He controls everything. And in this particular plague, Pharaoh breaks down a, a little bit, and he says to Moses to entreat for him. This is in verse 8. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat Yahweh that he may cause the frogs to depart from me and from my people. He says, Just let things go back to me being comfortable and safe and not bothered by these things anymore. And then I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to Yahweh. See, he wants the glory for letting the people go if they go. He's more concerned about self-preservation rather than honoring the Lord. But he's also recognizing the superiority of Moses over him. Which Moses, by the way, was his stepbrother and his older brother at this point. So in a way, younger brother sitting on the throne is thinking, older brother's here to take the throne that rightfully belongs to him. So there's a sort of political tension with that, with stepbrother Moses showing up. But he's also recognizing, Moses is superior to me. He needs to be entreating for me rather than me entreating for him to my gods. Moses and his God are more powerful. And verse 10 it says, So he said, May it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like Yahweh our God. This is communicating to Pharaoh that God alone has glory. And all of these things is... We had mentioned, when you read verse 15, this is after Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart with firmness and he did not listen to them. And then catch this, as Yahweh had spoken. This is a reminder, everything's happening according to plan. If you're living in the moment of this thing, it just looks like a disaster that's never going to end. Yeah, it needs to be echoed over and over and over. These things are happening as Yahweh had spoken to bring comfort and hope to his people. And that's the nature of God's word. He speaks and that's how it happens and it can't be any other way. There are no possibilities. There's only God's sovereign decree and it can only happen that way. The third plague deals with the gnats which the magicians it says they did the same with their secret arts their deceitful signs and wonders that they did but when you come to verse 19 it says the magician said to pharaoh this is the finger of god this isn't even the hand of god this is just the finger of god and he's just poking us but if he comes with all of his fingers and his whole hand this could be a bad deal but Pharaoh's heart was hardened with strength, and he did not listen to them as Yahweh had spoken. And you'll recall that the dust, or the, the gnats came out of the dust, which you remember, what else in the Bible came out of dust? Man, you know, this, this is a warning to man, I'm coming after you. If I can make gnats come out of the dust, just like I made man come out of the dust, I can turn you back into dust. But God is sending out a signal that he's out for one man. He's out for one serpent-empowered man who's been put on his belly to eat God's dust. Here the magicians are disabled. And they're recognizing that they can't compete with this God of glory. Moving on to the fourth plague, the flies here we begin another section of the plagues in 820 and how you know that you began a new section here is this phrase in the morning because there was evening and there was morning like in the creation week and Yahweh said to Moses rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water and you shall say to him thus says Yahweh let my people go that they may serve me. You know, this is about God receiving service to himself as, as is rightly due to him. But Pharaoh wanted that service and worship to him. He wanted that sacrifice to be for him and his buildings and his crops and his kingdom, but not for God and the kingdom that God is building. Well, why back at the water? Well, this is to show a transition of God not only controls the water, but also the land. There's no other Egyptian gods that control the land or Pharaoh. So who is it that actually controls the land? Well, what it says in this text is, this is that you may know that I, Yahweh, am in the midst of the land. There's no other gods there. Pharaoh's not in charge here. It's all about Yahweh and his land, which should remind you of what God promised to Abraham so long ago that his people would come back into his land under his blessing forever. You know, God addressed you know, his people in the Nile. Now he's addressing his land here in this next set of three plagues. In verse 25, Pharaoh at this point being worn down a little bit by the flies, he tells them to go But he doesn't want to tell them to serve God. He he won't say serve God until he's been totally breaking down. But Pharaoh continues to try to manipulate not only the land, and he tries to manipulate how the people worship. You know, who gets to go, how long they get to go, uh, who goes with them, and all of these sort of things. And In verse 26, Moses says, it's not right for you to do so. For we will sacrifice to Yahweh our God what is an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice what is an abomination to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not then stone us? But here's what Pharaoh says in verse 28. He says, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to Yahweh your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away And treat for me. So again, Pharaoh wants the glory. He wants to say, when it happens, I want you to know it's because I let you go. But he also says, but I also want you to know that I tell you how to worship. You can only go this far. But I also want to let you know that I want you to make this stuff stop stop happening to me. I don't like the flies. So get Yahweh to stop that and do what I say. In verse 29, Moses said, Behold, I I am going out from you, and I shall entreat Yahweh that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only may Pharaoh not deal deceitfully again, and not letting the people go to sacrifice to Yahweh. Here you learn something of God's revelation God cannot lie. And when he says something's going to happen a particular way, that's exactly how it happens. But you're also seeing Satan's lies versus God's truth. And Moses is confronting that. He's saying, Pharaoh, your words are deceitful. But he's saying this to the Pharaoh who says that you guys have been believing false words from Yahweh. But now... What's being communicated is God doesn't have false words, Pharaoh does. And God will not be mocked. Pharaoh will reap what he sowed. God is further revealing what he began revealing at the burning bush when he said, I am who I am, or could also be translated, I will be who I will be. He wants to reveal this to Egypt, to Israel to the world, and even to us today as we continue to learn these truths of the unchanging God, that he's exclusive and there isn't another that compares to him, that he's unique and there's nobody like him, that everything belongs to him, and that he's the God who retaliates against those who go after him and his people. These 10 plagues, as we've mentioned, they relate back to These special 10 phrases back in Genesis 1, God said, that's about God's word. And it's not by happenstance that if you were to go through Genesis 1 and put a box around every time it says God said that there's 10 of them and then there's 10 plagues and then there's 10 commandments that are tied in all of these things together. To show that God is the creator and controller of all of history. He controls the water, the land, sky, everything. The fifth plague moves to the Egyptian livestock. And again, there is, what's unique in this plague is in, found in verse 4 where it says, Yahweh will make a distinction This is a God who made a distinction between light and darkness and things like this and creation. Now he's making a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. And you see that this is a much bigger problem than just having flies around. Uh, Now your food source is gone. What are you going to eat uh, you've gone from you know code yellow to to code orange at this point. You know this is really bad. This is very concerning, and this teaches something about how God's wrath comes down on a nation. It increases gradually. It moves from small things that are irritable to true calamities over time. It moves from economic catastrophes to what later is going to be a military disaster at the Red Sea. but as we said, that God is moving in on zeroing in on judging men and delivering men. We see that in the sixth plague concerning the boils, which again, what is mentioned here is he took for himself a, a handful of soot from a kiln and Moses tossed it toward the sky and the side of Pharaoh and says, and it will become fine dust. You know, this is a reminder of man coming from the dust and God being in control of these things. And it says, and it will become boils breaking out with sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. You know, Again, this is focusing in that God is moving in toward judging men, but it's happening gradually. You know, There's... A way in this a plea for repentance, like when you recognize the the pain that's brought about through this judgment, it should lead you to recognize the kindness of the Lord, that he didn't kill you as he ought to, but he has given you a chance to turn to him. These boils are so bad that the magicians couldn't stand. At this point, they're totally defeated, and you think at this point Pharaoh would break down, but... Yahweh hardens his heart for round three. He's not going to let him off the hook that easy. And the language in this plague switches from Pharaoh hardened his heart to Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart. You see that in 9-12, Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart with strength. And he did not listen to, him, to them just as Yahweh had spoken to Moses. The inability of Pharaoh's cabinet of magicians and sorcerers and the such shows that, you know, every counsel besides God's counsel fails. Psychology fails. So-called science fails. Being true to yourself, following your heart fails. And this only God's word prevails, but we want to look at not only how Pharaoh's counsel failed, because he gave those things glory. The word that's translated glory comes from the Hebrew word kavod, which is also translated heavy or weight. You know, you know about how this is talked about in Romans chapter 8, where Paul says he doesn't consider like the the present light momentary afflictions of this world worthy to be compared to the weight. Of glory, so when you think about glory, it's the things that you give the most weight. It's the things that you think about the most, talk about the most, live for the most. You know, for Pharaoh, there was glory and weight given to you know these sort of counselors of sorcerers and magicians that he had. But where do we do that ourselves? Where do we misplace our own fear and? trust in the wrong things you see with you know the Egypt and Israel divide what was it that Egypt was fearful of they were fearful of the Israelites multiplying and their being they become political dissidents and they rise up against the regime to take it down so they said we have to oppress them to do something to stop that from happening well what were the Israelites concerned with well they were concerned with the oppression of Egypt, and wondering how they could ever be set free from such a thing. But you see, they were only seeing things on a horizontal level on both sides. They were both practically atheist. Nobody's thinking about God and his promises and his covenants and his control over all things. This makes me think of a time, it was about 10 years ago, I was driving to work and listening to Christian radio and on this particular program the the political Christian conservative talk host was talking about the coming Muslim invasion of America. They're in the government, they're in the education system and we have to do something about it. So we've brought an apologist on on our show to teach us what we need to do with these Muslims that are here to kill us and take away our American liberties. Christian apologist man, what should we do? Christian apologist man, said we shouldn't be afraid of them, uh, but we should recognize that they're, they're coming to us so that we can make our God known to them. You know, our concern isn't how do we escape, but how do we endure faithfully? The goal isn't escape suffering if it's to come, but to endure in faithfulness and to not turn the mission field into the enemy. It's like, if they come here, that's great. We didn't have to go to them. They're coming here so that we can be a witness of Christ to them. But you can see how the fear of such an event distracts Christians from being on mission, because now you're not seeing the mission field as the mission field. They're the enemy to escape and to get away from and to be timid and scared about all of the things that they're doing. We see that in you know all sorts of other things. Democrats versus Republicans, liberals versus conservatives, the left versus the right, or perhaps one of, you know the greater issue of the moment is people, they're concerned about Marxist or infiltrating the the government and the education system. And the answer is we need to get conservatives in the government and in the education system. But what's missing in, in all of that is, well, where's God at in all of that? Where's the witness of who he is and looking to him for salvation rather than thinking, well, maybe we can bring it through us controlling these things somehow. Or maybe we can find some sort of political party that has enough power that'll just preserve my comfort of life and things can be the way that I want them to be. What do all of these examples have in common? Fear of man. The Egyptians fear of man, but it was Israelite men. Israelites feared Egyptian men. With the Muslim American thing, it was, you know, they were fearing each other. Marxists and conservatives, they're fearing each other. How are we to to think about these things? How are we to think about suffering and endurance and our wanting to escape suffering and our need to endure and to be faithful to the mission of making God known? If you turn with me to 2 Timothy, we have some answers and God's word and how we're to think about these things, which will be instructive to us. 2 Timothy is a a book about faithful endurance. When we need to be reminded of the faithful endurance that we're called to, 2 Timothy is a good book for the soul. And in chapter 1, verse 7, it says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline. You know, he hasn't given us a spirit of being afraid of other people and men and what they might do to us, but of the power to deny those sort of fears, you know, the power to live in God's grace and to tell others of it. He says also of love, a love that sacrifices and wants to make God known to other people and self-discipline, because you know what it's like in those moments when you're fearful of different things. It takes a lot of work to get your heart to turn around in the thing. It takes some discipline. You know, it doesn't just happen in just telling yourself, stop it. <laughs> yeah, it takes some effort and discipline and being in God's word. And notice how in verse 8, it's tied to our witness. He says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of either the witness about our Lord or me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And you think about that when you think about, you know, political upheaval and different things. Do you think we need to join together in suffering for the gospel? Or do you think, well, we need to join together and vote and avoid the suffering somehow? Which is always a disappointment in California, right? I mean, what did you think was going to happen? And we're often talking about, well, guys, you remember this? You remember the election? You remember the last election? You remember this thing that we heard about in the news and this bad deal and that bad deal? We tend to bring to remembrance all sorts of things like that. And often we forget what's in chapter 2 and verse 8 here in 2 Timothy. Here's what, what Paul says because it needed to be said then and now. He says, remember Jesus Christ Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Instead of being fearful of that you might lose your life, remember you're gonna live again. Uh, you can't die. Uh, you're more sure to rise out of your grave than your bed tomorrow. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead of the seed of David, the, the forever king of the forever kingdom who's coming, according to my gospel. He says, for which I endure hardship. It's like, well Paul why do you like go through all of these difficult things and going out to minister to people who beat you people who ha- have almost killed you and then you go back and you talk to them again He says I endure because of Jesus Christ risen from the dead I know that ultimately I can't be killed and I know that he's victoriously going to reign on this earth that his kingdom message is unthwartable he says because I know those things that's why I endure and it's how I endure now he doesn't say remember all of the great problems that are going on in the the world today and how people might kill you and look at all the stuff that Satan's doing in the world according to what we just heard in the news for which we hope to escape hardship even to chains as a criminal You see, this message is very different than that. It's putting us in remembrance of Jesus Christ, of the resurrection, of his certain coming kingdom, that he has instructed us to pray that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, and he's going to answer that prayer that he told us to pray. Our aim is not to escape, but to endure hardship This is something that we need to hear and to embrace as we see it was these sort of perspectives are given to us not only in Exodus but throughout Scripture and many other ways. And just as I've mentioned when we read a narrative, the plot gives us a perspective on life. And it encourages us to endure unto our faithful God who will fulfill his covenant with Abraham. Continuing on with the seventh plague back in Exodus chapter 9, verse 13, it starts another set of plagues that come from the sky, and it's signified again with that phrase, in the morning. And here you kind of get God's combo special move sort of thing here, where He uses hail, locust, and darkness, something that's going to come up in combination in other books in the Bible. And with this plague of the hell, notice in verse 14, it says, For this time I will send all my plagues against your heart and amongst your servants and your people. Why? So that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had sent forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, You would have been wiped out from the earth, but indeed for this reason I have caused you to stand in order to show you my power and in order to recount my name through all the earth. Now, Why did God do this? For the glory of his name. But listen how he goes on an attack on Pharaoh's glory. He says, still you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will rain down very heavy hell. That word heavy is that word kavod I told you about that's translated glory. He says, I'm going to destroy the glory that you think that you have with glorious hell that shows you that I'm the only one who has glory and I'm going to totally crush yours. Such as has not been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. And here's how Pharaoh's servants respond in verse twenty. It says the one among the servants of Pharaoh who feared the word of Yahweh made his servants and his livestock flee into the houses. But he who did not consider in his heart the word of Yahweh left his servants and his livestock in the field. So you even see a division here in Egypt. Some are saying, Man, I don't know what Pharaoh's up to. He's not getting it. Kids, get inside, bring your stuff in, or it's gone. And there's some other people who say you know who who cares you know we're not going to listen to what to what Yahweh says our stuff's probably going to be fine but now Yahweh said to Moses to stretch out his hand toward the sky that there would be hell in all of the land of Egypt on man and on beast and on every plant of the field throughout the land of Egypt so you see here that the judgment's increasing men are dying animals are dying Every plant in the field is dying. Now you think, this was not a world with grocery stores. This was not a world where you could drive to the next town. Uh, Egypt was the supply chain. I mean, they're by the river. They're the ones who had all the food. Everybody else depended on them. So this is something where it's not only affecting Egypt, but it's getting the attention of the entire world because they're saying, you know, the leeks, the onions, garlic the peanut butter it's not coming over here anymore and all we have is sand there's just sand everywhere but now Egypt looks like our place it's just sand but with dead animals and people and plants you know what are we going to do in this way as God is judging Egypt he's also warning the other nations he says what I'm doing to them I'll do to you too if you reject me I want you to know that I'm coming for you it's not going to stop here God is putting himself on the map throughout the world. And theology is being actualized in this moment as he's warning the rest of the world of his coming judgment. But you notice how Pharaoh responded to, responded to this in 921. It, it talks about these people who did not, it said, he who did not consider in his heart the word of Yahweh. And that word heart is important because God is the God of the heart. That's what he's interested in. He's not interested in just doing what, what he wants on the outside. He wants you to love him and from that love display a commitment to him and how you live. And what we're seeing in this is a, a microcosm of all of humanity. You know, Israel and Egypt's heart problem is the world's heart problem. Their problem wasn't unique. The problem of the heart is everybody's problem. All of us have a a resistance and hardness toward God unless he gives us a new heart. But even total destruction of a nation couldn't change human hearts. It would take something, a power greater than that. In verse 27, this is the first time that Pharaoh says he sent and he called for Moses and Aaron and he said to them, I have sinned this time. Yahweh is the righteous one and I and my people are the wicked ones. Well, what do you guys think? Has Pharaoh been converted here? Uh, Has he become a a worshiper of Yahweh? Is this a real repentance? Repentance. The idea of sin here that he's recognizing is he's violated a standard. He says, and God's that standard. He's the righteous one. Pharaoh is learning that he's sinning. But righteousness is more than just doing things right or doing things right so that you don't have these bad consequences. But it's attaining to the standard of the righteousness of God. And what is being communicated here within God's agenda is that God is right, period. He's right in everything that he does. He's completely justified in everything that he does, in every single plague that happened, every single affliction, every single hardship, and nobody can question him. Nobody can come to him and say, well, why did you do it this way? God, you need to explain this to me. He doesn't have to explain himself to anybody. What God is teaching is that you begin in all of your thinking with the thought, God is right. You never question his rightness. You start with he is right. Psalm 22 says that all the nations will come to him ultimately and declare his righteousness. They'll say that everything that God does is right. His agenda is right. His plan for his world is right. That he's exclusive. He's unassailable in his position. No one can bring him down. Nobody can question him. Nobody can thwart his agenda. Nobody can help him or hurt him. He's righteous. He's virtuous. He's honorable. There's nothing wrong with him or in him. God is totally unique and other in this way. To which Paul, recognizing this in the letter to the Romans, he says, you know, let God be right and every man a liar. You know, we start in our thinking with God is right, and this influences all of our study of God. It influences all of our theology. You know, we believe what Paul wrote in Romans 3, that God is just and the justifier, which could also be translated God is righteous and the righteouser. Everything that he does is right, and he's the only one who can make things right. Well, Pharaoh here is still gradually breaking down, and he still wants to say, I will let you go, rather than God is the one letting you go. And Moses spreads out his hands to Yahweh, the hell comes down, and you've got to get when, you know, God's going to send down hell, he doesn't miss it's not like he's trying to hit people or animals and plants. It's, it's right on every single time. But what he does miss every time is Moses. Moses is living right in the midst of all of this. And you're seeing salvation being worked out, that salvation is both destruction and deliverance. But what happens is Moses doesn't escape, but he endures and all of this happens as all of the plagues happen, that you may know that the earth is Yahweh's. The earth is not Pharaoh's. Pharaoh would tell people he was the God of gods, the creator and controller of all things. But here we see Pharaoh doesn't have glory. He's not the creator and controller. There are no other gods. You can't attribute this to Mother Nature or Climate change or any other silly thing. But Moses knows that this is all a game for Pharaoh. And in this destruction, some of the crops are left behind so that the next plague can happen. And Pharaoh's heart is hardened with strength to a new level. And in this, you see that God is teaching something about himself, that he afflicts people in order to teach truth about himself but you also see that his purposes and history are complex. It's not like he's just trying to do one thing. Uh, He's afflicting the Egyptians to release Israelites. He's making Egypt an object lesson for all time to all nations about his judgment. He's proving that he is the one true God and that he's acting also for the sake of Egypt to disciple them in his truth while he's delivering the Israelites and evangelizing everybody on the planet with this event. And God's purposes in history are manifold and complex. God afflicted both Egypt, the Israelites. The concern for many was just to minimize their suffering. Like with Pharaoh, we see that his... What looked like repentance wasn't genuine repentance. He just wanted the suffering to stop. He didn't want to give God glory through his repentance. He just didn't like all the bad consequences anymore. And we want to be aware of, in our own hearts, to not have that kind of repentance ourselves, where we can say it right. We can communicate something. It sounds like, you know, it sounds like Pharaoh was rightfully theologically repentant as he as he should be. And we can sound that way but still be missing the heart of it where we just we just want the pain of the consequences to go away but we really just want to keep doing things our way. Let's move to the eighth plague about the locust. This was a testimony that God was building for himself in future generations and you see that in the first two verses in chapter 10. Then Yahweh said to Moses, come to Pharaoh for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants with firmness that I may set these signs of mine among them and that you may recount in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I dealt severely with the Egyptians and how I put my signs among them that you may know that I am Yahweh. See, you see, this was to have a testimony of his name for future generations, not only for this moment, but to have a testimony like he did from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Moses to the sons of Israel to Gentiles in the church today, that that testimony would continue even to us as we hear it today. This would pass from their son to their grandson. You think this this Exodus event was in the first covenant kind of like the cross and resurrection event of the new covenant. You know, this was the thing that they would look back on and say that's what salvation is like. That's what our God is like. That's how he saves people. It was the thing that they would celebrate in the Passover. Well, here are the locust cover the entire land 100% of it bringing about 100% destruction any plant residue anything that was left behind is totally gone even people's houses and cupboards and doomsday food prepper storage all gone and Pharaoh's servants at this point you know, they, they're asking, how long? I mean, how do you say that to Pharaoh? How do you come up to this, this man who could, you know, have you executed at the snap of his fingers? I mean, how do you come to the point where you're just willing to say, how long are you going to do this, Pharaoh? You know, that could be your neck right in that moment. But these people are like, we're dead anyways. We're dead anyways. I, you know, let's just go ahead and say it to them. Let's just go ask them, you know, how long is he going to keep doing this? Pharaoh, as you can see, he wasn't interested in Israelites being converted to Yahweh worship. You know, he, he wanted to convert Israelites to his, his way of worship and his control. But he breaks down a little bit more, and now at this point he uses the word serve in verse 8, where he says, go serve Yahweh your God but he still wants control in who the people are that's going, which shows he's not totally broken down yet, but God continues to display his power, his wrath, his plan for deliverance. And in verses 16 to 17, you see him break down a little bit more in chapter 10 with these words. It says, Then Pharaoh hurriedly called for Moses and Aaron, now there's some irony there, and where you know Moses and Aaron aren't just coming to them; he's calling for them. He said, "You guys are superior to me. I have to call for you now." And he said, "I have sinned against Yahweh, your God, and against you. So now, please forgive my sin, only this once, and entreat Yahweh, your God. Well, why? Says, that." He would only cause this death to depart from me. He says, I'm not bowing the knee, but just take the things away that I don't like. He's breaking down. He's hurrying. He's confessing. He's asking for forgiveness. But here's Yahweh's response. Verse 20, Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart with strength, and he did not let the sons of Israel go. God responds in judgment where he gives Pharaoh, the final strength to continue to endure the plagues so that God can reveal everything that he wants to reveal about himself. And Egypt serves as a paradigm in a way for how divine judgment concludes. They they exchange the truth of God for a lie. And what does God do? He hands them over to the lie that they want. He gives a people over to their evil. And through that, their suffering gradually increases, and any hope of true repentance fades. You read this same sort of line of reasoning in Romans chapter 1, where it says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We live under the judgment of God where we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and we're seeing God giving up people to the dishonoring of their bodies and all sorts of things to mutilate them so that they wouldn't appear to be the gender that God made them in or the abuse of the good gift of sex that God has given within marriage to be enjoyed and also to carry about the birthing of other future image bearers. But we have to remember in living, you know, in a time, in a place where people are under the judgment of God, His salvation isn't escaping. It's enduring and suffering that they might come to know Him. People, as you know, that are given to over to all sorts of consequences of their their sin, exchanging the truth for a lie, even when their stubbornness leads to exceedingly painful things you know we see this not only in the things that I've just mentioned but in divorce in abortion and all sorts of sexual perversion that not only hurts that person but everybody in a way and that people even though they recognize the pain that these this disobedience brings they still have an irrational anger towards God's mesh- messengers You know, they don't want to hear a word of compassion. Uh, They don't want to hear how they can be rescued from their pain because they love death. But they're also living in a time where their suffering is intense, but it's not fatal. So there's hope that they might be saved because they're not dead yet. It's true that destruction is imminent, but there is salvation for those who will repent and turn to the God of grace but you see often when there's any small sign of change for the good that you know the pressure to repent quickly goes away you're like things are hard well okay it's not that hard after all so you'll you'll have events like you know 9-11 for example churches are filled with people they want to know what's going on in the world you know they want prayer for all sorts of things yeah, you know, next week, where did all the people go that were concerned about God? Say, like, ah, things are okay now. Life's pretty comfortable. I can still go out and eat all the places I want to eat out, do all the things I like to do. Go to church. Nah, let's just take the boat out. Let's lastly just consider the ninth plague here, which is darkness. This was Again, communicating that God controlled not only the water, the land, and the sky, but this was a darkness that could be felt. This was a darkness designed to drive you insane, to destroy stability and totally break down somebody mentally. And there's a distinction that's made between Israel and Egypt. What you to think about this. If you're in Goshen and you're looking at this black thing, you know, and of course your kids are going to be like, hey, let's go touch it. You're like, don't touch it. But it's like, you you can't see it. All there is, there's just blackness and screaming. And then there's the people in it that they could feel this darkness and they couldn't see anything. It was for them a foretaste of hell. You know, they're not partying there with their friends. They can't see their friend, they can just hear them in anguish. But God is communicating here that there is no Egyptian God that controls the light or the darkness. God controls both the light and the darkness. And he's communicating to all of Egypt and the Israelites looking on that your God of light doesn't exist. He's also dead. And this particular God was known as Ra, which was known to be incarnate in Pharaoh, that the God of light became a man who had come to be the ruler and savior of his people in Pharaoh is what was taught within the Egyptian religion. But they were seeing, you know, the incarnate God of light, Pharaoh, as they thought of him, really isn't the God of light, is he? He's in the darkness with us. So verse 24, finally, Pharaoh says, go, go. And he uses the word serve. He tells them to take their flocks and herds and even their little ones. But with the flocks and herds, he actually detains them. He's breaking down, but he wants to hold back on the flocks and herds. Uh, Pharaoh's heart is hardened to endure to the end. And he says to Moses, get away from me. And beware, do not see my face again or you shall die. And in verse 29... Moses said, as you have spoken, I shall never see your face again. You see here that Pharaoh is no match for Yahweh. God alone has glory. Nothing else has glory. No human ruler, no political system, no difficult circumstances, no suffering has this glory. God alone has this kind of glory and God alone gets these thoughts in our minds that we put more weight to what his word says and what he says about how things are and how things are going to be rather than how we're perceiving things in life. God gets the glory and the weight and everything. Yahweh alone has control over creation and history through his covenants. All of the covenants that God makes with man throughout scripture or basically the framework for all of history. You want to know the covenants in the Bible because it'll help you to understand how everything works in the world. It'll under, help you to understand where history has gone and where it's going. But especially to see that there's no one like Yahweh in all the earth. There's no one like him who controls creation and says this is how things are going to be and it happens exactly like that every time. That he's totally accurate when he tells you how things were, how things are, and how things will be, because he's the one who is and who was and is to come. And you see what he's doing for Israel is that he's rescuing them from a slavery and tyranny that's economic and political, but what you're going to see with them is they need something more than just... A moving truck to get them from Egypt to the wilderness they need a salvation that's of the heart and in all of this we learn that no one is like Yahweh in all the earth that he alone is righteous he's righteous in his judgment he's right in his destruction he's right in his deliverance he alone is the controller of hearts and history he alone is creator and he will not share his glory with another he alone defines what is good and what is evil and there is no other He alone is God and there is no other. He alone is Savior and there is no other. He alone is worthy to be served with our thinking, with our feelings, and with our actions. And there is none like him in all the earth. And everything happens as he has spoken. And with that, we'll close in prayer as the music team comes for our final song. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for the encouragement that our hearts receive and hearing about how you alone have glory, and we pray that you would convict us and help us to see and live that truth where we would not be distracted with other things which we deem fearful, but we would fear in you alone. They would not hope in other false hopes of men and things that we think that they might be able to do for us, but that we would hope alone in you And stand firm in your grace, even in the grace to have the power to not give in to fearful thoughts, to not give in to current intimidation or to give in to current lustful passions or distractions, but that we would be good soldiers, faithful farmers, given to your cause and your work alone, remembering Jesus Christ, who was risen from the dead, who will raise us with a body like his to be with him forever, where suffering is no more, where sin is no more, where death is no more, and to believe these words and for that to encourage our faith, that things would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries inquiring to know what time or what kind of time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, and these things which now have been declared to you through those who proclaimed the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, having girded your minds for action, being sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not being conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your conduct, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. As we think about this salvation and the greatness of it that Christ saves sinners like us, we have taken our first fruits offering because we want others to hear of this good news, even Egyptians, which you know that we support that cause of the gospel being made known in Egypt, and we want you to know that in the taking of our our offering that uh, we have given Back to God, $13,673.93 that he gave us. (laughs) So we're thankful for the Lord's grace that he's given us those things to share with others so that we might make his name known to Egypt, to Romania, to Alaska, to Italy, to India, to Placer County, and the ends of the earth. So let's go and continue in that work. You're dismissed.